0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Hey, a quick reminder that we have a special offer for listeners to this podcast. If you'd like 30 days free of Bulwark Plus, uh, we have a special site, slash Charlie. And if you sign up, you get a 30 day free free trial to bulwark plus which gives you access to the other podcasts including the next level podcast as well as our daily newsletters uh, including mine the morning shots and and JVL's triad um, midday and if you if you sign up for the newsletter you will see how I describe uh, Donald Trump's impeachment trial, uh, strategy basically as uh dumb fuckery. So, um, you get, that's a, that's a bonus if you, if you sign up. So it's, it's the bulwark.com, uh, slash Charlie. And by the way, thank you for all of you who've listened uh, to the podcast. We, uh, I think I mentioned last week, we've, we've crossed uh 32 million total downloads. And last month we had 2.6 million downloads, uh, which is pretty good for a January. And that, that, that would be our record, except that we had this one month where I had Bill Crystal on one of the episodes, I think somebody thought it was Billy Crystal, the comedian, because we had about three times as many people. So it kind of skews the numbers, because apparently Billy Crystal is more popular than Bill Crystal. Um, who knew? I, I did not know. So if if you take out that month, this is uh, the was the most listened to month we've had on the podcast. Okay, I need to get this off my my chest because and this is something done by the folks at uh, at Metis touch. I want to give them credit although I have no idea who they are. uh m e i d a s touch.com and they sort of went off on a rant about the use of the word conservative in the current climate and I don't know it sort of it kind of resonated
1: so this is what the guy's had to say. I read an article today Brett and Jordy that said conservatives group donating 700000 to Senator Hawley. First off, it's absurd that he's getting any money. But what really bothered me was the framing of conservative, the framing of right versus left. Because this group, this group of Republicans, there is nothing conservative about them whatsoever. There's nothing right about them whatsoever. It is not a conservative decision to support QAnon, which this Republican Party not only does, but its members are basically drawn from QAnon. It is not conservative to support insurrection and terrorist attacks against the United States of America. It is not a conservative decision. When you claim to support life but allow more than 400,000 Americans to needlessly die from COVID, it's not a conservative decision not to wear masks. It would be a very conservative decision to say, hey. There's a huge global pandemic taking place. Let me be a little bit conservative here. Go wear a fucking mask. okay? that would be the conservative thing to do right here. You know, the liberal thing, you know, if you're using these terms in the sense and this is why these terms matter, you would think a sense would be like, "Hey, hey, hey, let me not wear a fucking mask. That's why the framing of issues matter. Conservative should mean you wear a mask. You're careful.
0: Okay, thank you. Just th- thank you for letting me get that off. Let me get that off uh, our chest. So today's podcast is kind of a crossover project, the ultimate crossover project. Our guest is Aaron Gloria Ryan, who's a contributor to the Daily Beast, host of Crooked Media's wildly popular Hysteria podcast, and a writer for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So Aaron, after all these years. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me. This does feel like a great crossover event, sort of.
0: Okay, sort of. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're both Wisconsinites. You're, you're, we a Wisconsin, are. you're a Wisconsin girl. In fact, I naively uh, asked you, "Are you living in Wisconsin or Minnesota these days?" And you said, "No, you're you're splitting time between L.A. and Utah."
2: So, <laughs> so
0: explain. So basically, it's either the West Coast hipsters or Mormons.
2: You up, <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like a it's like a Goldilocksing, I think, because L.A. is too much of one thing. And I just kind of crave a little bit of wholesomeness. Sometimes I need to get over to Utah and see families hiking together and everybody is completely sober. Um, it's it's great. Um, no, actually, my my husband and I are kind of outside people. Um, I was raised in the Midwest. Uh, I was, I'm from Wisconsin's seventh district, which is very rural. And so I was always told as a kid, um, if I was annoying my parents to just go play in the woods. So that's something that's sort of part of me. Um, in LA, there isn't really a lot of woods to go play in. Um, so, you know, during, um, during the pandemic, I've been getting a lot of cabin fever and we've kind of alleviated it by just driving to Utah where there is so much nothing that you don't have to see anybody for, days if you really don't want to. And it's, it's actually a really beautiful state. There's a lot of um, public lands there and it's a uh, pandemic is actually a really great time to enjoy those public lands provided that, you know, it's not too crowded when you try to go.
0: So as a Wisconsin person, you, you, have used a snowplow, right? I mean, I mean, a snowblower.
2: No, no. Those were looked down upon in my house. Actually, my, my parents didn't let us drive snowmobiles. They didn't like snow. They didn't like snow blowers. Um, they also didn't for a long time. My dad had this weird pride around not having a riding lawnmower. I think that you're
0: not, you're not Mormon.
2: No, okay. <laughs> no, we uh, I've never used a snowblower, though, because my parents said it wasted gas. And, and we were given arms and legs and muscles and shovels for a reason. And we could use that to move the snow if we needed to.
0: Okay, was well, I was wondering whether you would have been the you know the first person who would have moved snow in that way, who actually lives in, in LA. So uh, <laughs> later this afternoon, just so you know, Wisconsinite will understand this. I have to I have to do roof raking. Did you ever do roof raking?
2: I'm, I mean, I'm aware.
0: I'm yeah, aware of roof raking. No, that's crazy. It is. It is just absolutely nuts. So you you uh, you were a writer for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You actually wrote for a sitcom. I mean, yeah. look, how cool a job is that to be paid for.
2: It is really cool, but I think a lot of people don't know what the mechanics are. It's not like I go into an office and everyone sits around like popping their heads in each other's offices all day and just saying funny jokes. It's like you sit around in a big meeting with all of the other writers and the meeting goes on all day. And a lot of us are fidgeters. Um, and so there's a lot of, we had like clay. There was one uh, writer who was really into origami for a couple seasons. So she would just sit there folding origami and like pitching jokes or pitching ideas when they came to her. We had like um, kinetic sand. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but people with kids probably have nightmares about it. It's a sort of like sticky sandcastle consistency, oh, yeah. reusable sand. And so people were playing with that. Um, so it is, it's a lot of, you're just constantly engaged, you're constantly stimulated, and you're just constantly around people who are also really funny. And you're trying to have your brains work as one single unit. And so it's super fun. But at the end of the day, when I get home, I when we're working on the show, I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to I just want to watch The Bachelor and eat grapes. I don't want to do anything.
0: You just don't want to be funny anymore. You don't want to laugh anymore. That's it. I'm done. I know. know, (laughs) Right. right. Watching
2: sad movies because I'm not on the clock anymore. So it's time for me to cry.
0: So you sit around, and you brainstorm, and you, you don't actually, it's like, right, because I think people have the sense of, you know, of, you know, ink-stained wretches sitting behind the typewriter, and they're they're coming up with dialogue and everything. I, I get the impression that you sit around this big room, and you just toss around the ideas, and somebody else is taking notes, and somehow it becomes a script.
2: <laughs> that happen. Well, it's, it kind of happens in phases. Every different, sh- every show does it differently. I've, I've worked on a couple different shows before. Um, but they've been run by the same people. So usually people run rooms the same way. Um, so it, it starts out where we are all in one room for, uh, you know, a week or two, depending on what the show is, sometimes longer. And we're coming up with ideas for what can happen in an episode. And the people who are in charge of the show, the, the head writers and producers, will break it down and decide we like this, we like this, we like this, we like this. They'll divide the room in half. Half the room will work on one idea, half the room will work on another idea. And um once each idea is boiled down to a, an outline, which is kind of a point by point point by point uh explanation of what happens in the episode, the script gets assigned to one of the writers. So by the time you get assigned a script, you, you know, everything that is supposed to happen in the episode and you just write it and then you give it to the head writer. They give you notes, you work on it again, and then you turn it in. And that's kind of how that works. Um, sometimes groups will read their script. Um, you know, we'll, we'll go over it together as a group and pitch jokes on it. Um, sometimes a script won't work and it's not the right individual writer's fault. It's just something that, you don't really know if it's going to work until it gets to the point where the person who gets to say yes or no says it'll work or not. Sometimes you have to go back and, and redo some stuff. And sometimes, um, I remember after the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl, um, we went into the writer's room right after that. And we were originally going to do, I think, three episodes about the Super Bowl. <laughs> and by the time we got to the end of writing the show, we were just sort of like the, The producers, head writers were like, we can't, this is too many episodes about the Super Bowl. This is coming out in September. So that sort of thing, that sort of thing happens. People do get assigned individual scripts and they, they do sit down and work on them. But by the time they've broken off that way, everything has been pretty much written out.
0: So, so is there some cross-pollination between, because you write for the Daily Beast, you have the podcast for Crooked Media, and, and you, you do this, is there any, like, here's a great line that I can't use on the TV show, but I'm going to use on the podcast, or I'm going to slip into my Daily Beast article?
2: Well, the, the show I would, has, I would recycle. I mean, sometimes I'll come up with something that is just not the right fit for the thing I'm working on at the time, and I have a big notes file in my phone. And it looks like an insane person wrote it because it's just fragments of jokes that I'm like, oh, wouldn't that be funny? Um, and sometimes I use them, sometimes they just kind of sit there. And sometimes when I'm, you know, feeling a little stuck creatively, I'll go back and look at them and, and at least have a little bit of a laugh at whatever dumb thing I came up with. But yeah, the show actually hasn't been, the pandemic has, <clears throat> has hit Hollywood pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of stuff, back last year had to stop being in production and uh, guidance here in California has been really confusing and start and stop. And so while some productions have started up again and writer's rooms have started up again, it's definitely not, it's been a while since I've been in the room. So I don't even know how it works anymore. I think right now uh, people are doing Zoom writer's rooms, which to me sounds a little bit like a nightmare um, because I just... Too much Zoom is just draining. But um, but yeah, you know, Hollywood's trying to adapt and, and hopefully by the end of the pandemic, there will be some kind of long-term workable solution.
0: So that's a great segue to talk about Ted Cruz. This is all, you know, background to Ted Cruz.
2: So <laughs>
0: Ted Cruz, I want you to explain this to me. Ted Cruz is on one of these, whatever, whatever the show was, it it, it, it doesn't matter. And he's sharing his his insights into all things. And apparently Ted Cruz is, has an obsession with um, you know, portraying himself as a guy that knows movies, right? That, that he that he memorizes scripts and everything. And it may, makes him, you know, I, I suppose it's part of his I am a deep thinker, but also kind of hip. So he's talking about Hollywood and environmentalists. And I, I want you to help me with this one, because. He's talking about how Hollywood h- hates people. And this is the example from the the Avengers. Have you noticed in how many movies how often rabid environmentalists are the bad oh. guys, hmm. whether it's Thanos or, or go to Watchmen, you know, where, where, where the, the 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 view of the left is people are a disease they buy into the malthusian yeah. line that there are too many people yeah. in the world that people are bad and everything would be better if we had fewer people i mean thanos wanted to eliminate 50 percent of the life forms in the universe with one finger snapping okay aaron um what what point is he trying to make there um because it doesn't he actually make the opposite point that he's claiming to make
2: yeah, here's the thing. He's he's not even making an original point. There was a there was an op-ed written in the Washington Post a couple years ago that one of my Twitter followers uh, drew my attention to. It was written by Sonny Bunch about the phenomenon of the environmentalist antagonist in Hollywood movies. So it wasn't even an original take, and it also seemed like a real it was a real head-scratcher for me because I my takeaway from Avengers was not that Thanos was going to join Greenpeace. <laughs> My takeaway was that he was a genocidal maniac who wanted to eliminate half of the life on the planet. Right.
0: He was um, the bad guy. Right. Yeah. He wasn't the hero. You weren't supposed to like him. The whole movie was fighting him. So the whole point, yes, in Hollywood, they they think people are diseases. No, no, no. Ted, it's the bad guy, the villain who wants to do that. Right.
2: Right. I wasn't so,
0: right wingers got together and said let's let's portray environmentalists in the worst possible way pretty much that right
2: Yeah no that's not that's not really what happened and if we are going to talk about Hollywood and the way that that uh, environmentalism is depicted literally every kids movie has somebody who wants to destroy the earth as the antagonist children are raised <laughs> to believe that even in like Bambi I grew up um, you know, my dad hunted and stuff and, and Bambi really did a number on my moral okayness with my dad hunting because people who, who either people who are harvesting from the land are often used as antagonists in movies. It just, it, it's an, an incoherent point yeah. and it, it makes my brain hurt.
0: Well, speaking of incoherent points, though, for, for years he was citing the Princess Bride. I mean, he's got a thing about this, right? The Simpsons Pris- Princess Bride. He does imitations of Bill Pullman from Independence Day. He's got a thing, right? And he, but he always gets it
2: kind of wrong. Yeah, it's it's not it's it's a thing that I've noticed that he does, where he will a totally misinterpret the lesson of the pop culture that he's. Um, that he's quoting. So um, there was a speech that he gave at CPAC a few years back. And, and this is fresh in my mind because yesterday it finally came to a head. And I was like, I have to find all of these examples of him doing this. Um, he gave a speech at CPAC where he com- he compared uh, the Democratic Party to Lisa Simpson and the Republicans as the party of the rest of the Simpson family. But if you watch the Simpsons, part of the joke is that Lisa is so much better than the rest of her family and her father is constantly, you know, keeping her down. Her mother's enabling of her father is, uh, is ruining her. Her parents are ruining her life. Um, and so that was kind of a weird, weird misinterpretation. Um, another thing that's strange is that, yeah, he doesn't quite get it right. And he never quite overtly cites what he's doing. Um, there was, a, there was an incident, um, you know, when, president trump called ted cruz's wife ugly um which is such a i can't believe what a dumb fight for the people in the halls of power to be having like whose wife is ugly come on 12 uh 12 year olds don't have wives but you know what i'm saying um it was he he quoted a line from the american president on a sunday show Mm -hmm. and he kind of misquoted it and he didn't say, you know, like they said in this movie, blah, 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 blah. He just looked to the camera and said the the line kind of wrong. And the movie, first of all, when he was citing it, was twenty years old. So it's not like a fresh pop culture reference. It's not even, you know, if he he were quoting Anchorman or Borat or whatever, those are a lot newer. Um it just it just struck me as a little bit bizarre. And then the the Bill Pullman Independence Day thing is another thing that, that stuck out to me recently. When he was in Georgia Giving um, speeches in support of the two Republicans in the Senate runoff elections in early January. He gave this, he did this weird Bill Pullman and Independence Day act where he sort of paraphrased the Pullman speech, which is paraphrasing the Dylan, Dylan Thomas poem, and he doesn't cite it at all. It was we very. We
0: will not go quietly into that good night. That's the one.
2: Yes, exactly. And he was even kind of imitating his posture. He was wearing a similar jacket to him. And I just think, you know, if Ted Cruz really wants to uh, make a movie or be in a movie, at this point, he could probably raise the money to just produce one independently. You know, he doesn't he doesn't need to, to make DC his kind of bad version of movies that a lot of people liked.
0: So that, that particular quote, there's a it, it's it's kind of weird how that's kind of an obsession on in in the Trumpian right because there's a little example of Trumpian porn where they actually do that uh, that have that scene. And they they morph. um, But what do you do? I mean, they they, they put Donald Trump's head on Bill Pullman, as if it's Donald Trump, who's who's, you know, saying the words, and then you pan around the crowd, and it's Steve Bannon and Ted Cruz. And it's like, this is the fantasy world you people are living in, right? You actually think that you are like this, that you're that some I don't know, it's, it's part of that weird thing. So Speaking of, um, I know you had a podcast on the audacity of dopes, which I really like the title, the audacity of dopes. And thank you. Um, if, if if I remember it correctly, you were labeling uh, Jim Jordan as the uh, dumbest member of Congress. See, that's the thing about. I mean, let me digress for a second. The thing about Ted Cruz and, and Josh Hawley, and I, I think this is an important point that I actually hold them to a a much different standard than the complete, you know, box of hair, dumb people like the Louis Gomerts of the world. I mean, there are people who are (laughs) stupid. You know, I've said this for years. You know, you listen to Sean Hannity and you get stupider, you know, by, you know, every minute you listen to him. So it's like he's he is who he is. But it is the it's the guys who you suspect know better or should know better that I think are closer to. I think the technical term would be pure evil because they're misusing their talent. So uh, you think that Jim Jordan is the dumbest member of the House?
2: Yeah, I do. I do think Jim Jordan is the dumbest member of the House. And I know a lot that's of people- That's not what
0: you said on your podcast.
2: <laughs> uh, well, there's there's a lot of competition for dumb no, no, no,
0: that's not what you said. How did you describe Jim Jordan on your okay, podcast?
2: Okay, dumbest, dumbest motherfucker okay, in yeah, in Congress. He's the dumbest motherfucker in Congress. Okay. Um, I think the thing about Jim Jordan is he does really radiate stupidity. Uh, and I think right now at, in this Marjorie Taylor Greene of eras, a lot of people would point to her as, as being the dumbest member of Congress. And she might have the wackiest ideas, but I don't think she's as purely dumb as, as Jim Jordan. He, it, he's like a, he's just like a, a brick. He's, Nothing seems to really register with him, and he seems to have absolutely no awareness of his own stupidity. And I think your point about Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and how a person who is marginally intelligent has to really try to project stupidity—they have to make an effort. I think that you're completely right on because it's a yeah. If you're if you're an auto, if you're a naturally smart person and you want to appear If you want to come up with really obtuse interpretations of events as they're unfolding around you or if you want to mislead people, you have to make a choice. And the act of making the choice makes you a worse person than just being Jim Jordan and sort of, you know, rolling into Congress every day and just coming up with the dumbest possible thing to say.
0: Which, which means, of course, that Jim Jordan will eventually be the speaker of the House of Representatives, right? I mean, he's he, that's he's on that clear you know trajectory at the at the moment. But you know, I mean, Josh Hawley has to make the decision. Josh Allen has to make the decision to try to pretend to be dumb. Um, Jim Jordan is authentically dumb, although there's so much competition. I mean, this new this new class, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're, I mean, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is many, many things. I don't know whether she's done. Well, whatever. It's it's, it's hard to tell because there's almost this competition where they. Even if they were smart, they want to dumb themselves down. I mean, mm-hmm. that's 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 the thing. So flipping over to the Senate for a moment, I, and I w- want to get to your piece, uh, Meet the Mama's Boys of Donald Trump's Chicken Shit Army, um, in a moment. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the other guys who are such incredible disappointments. It's this b- bizarre, you know, phenomenon of guys who were, you know, once stars in their own right. You know, the Lindsey Grahams, the Mar- you know, Marco Rubios. You know, Ted Cruz was a candidate for president, and now they've abased themselves. Marco Rubio is going through this process of of shrinking his already shrunken self because he's terrified of Ivanka Trump. So can we just talk about Ivanka Trump for a moment, that we are in a world in which we are talking about the political future and power of Ivanka Trump and a you know member of the United States Senate is cowering in fear that Ivanka Trump would run against him in a primary and she'd beat him, wouldn't she?
2: See, I don't know enough about Florida because every single election, whatever happens in Florida, is a bit of a surprise to me. I'm always like, "Huh, I didn't, I didn't see that coming," you know. So, I don't want to, I don't want to step beyond what my my knowledge is on Florida here. But here's the thing about um, Ivanka Trump, and I think it also applies to people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Um, but Ivanka Trump is a really, really dramatic example of it. Ivanka Trump is probably the smartest member of the Trump family, but that is like being um, being a 35-year-old man and being the best player in a t-ball league of five-year-olds. You know, you get a real inflated sense <laughs> of how smart you are, how good you are with respect to the rest of the world when your bases of comparison and the people you're spending all your time around are just aggressively uncurious aggressively uncreative people. If you show even the tiniest amount of intelligence or compassion, you think that you're fucking Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that Ivanka Trump has um, the sort of mediocre white man confidence um, that is completely inaccessible to most people who are not mediocre white men. She believes herself, like Josh Hawley, to be a lot smarter than she is actually is. And she believes that because she, because of her inflated sense of intelligence, that she is capable of convincingly lying to more people. That's the thing that, that bothers me the most about being lied to. It's not, it's not just the lie. It's when somebody lies to me that tells me that they think they're smarter than me in that moment. And the way that Ivanka Trump conducts herself disingenuously um, sort of whitewashing everything, you know, everything bad that she is directly associated with in the white house. It to me betrays this idea that she believes that she's smart enough to lie to everybody. And I don't know if she's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if she's smart enough to lie to ever, to enough people in Florida to beat Marco Rubio in a primary. But here's some, here's something that I wouldn't discount. I, I, and I, and I don't like to, you know, be the, I, I don't want to be the, like, when you're a hammer, everything, everything looks like a nail here. But I think that there is some, I don't think that she's as gifted a polit, a gifted enough politician to defeat somebody with the name recognition of Marco Rubio, especially because she is, um, appealing to voters that have demonstrated and a kind of anti-woman bias in a lot of cases. And um, she's running against, you know, a person who's already a senator. And I think that, you know, she's kind of playing, she's playing, it, she's trying to appeal to voters who, you know, have no problem with misogyny in a lot of cases. And, and I think that that's going to end up not really working out for her.
0: Yeah. But the flip side of that, of course, is that, you know, the Trump world is a cult and um Florida Republicans have become extremely Trumpy and mm-hmm. they, they don't seem to have a problem with uh, with sort of the grifters and, and and the folks who who shade the truth because it's it's Florida and it 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 really depends whether or not uh, the you know, the anti pope sitting in Mar-a-Lago decides he's going to make this his 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 stand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think there's a very good chance that she'd beat him in the primary, but then maybe lose in a general election, although who knows. But you make an interesting point, And I keep coming back to this that one of the things about Trump world is the, the language that they use, that they are they are the voice of the forgotten people and that, that any criticism of them or of Donald Trump is an insult to the, the supporters, the followers, you know, that they hate you, they despise you, they look down on you. And yet it is this deep-seated contempt that they have for their own supporters, that they mm-hmm. feed them this constant diet of batshit. I mean, Mm -hmm. they think this is what they want. They have dumbed themselves down because they think that this is the level of their supporters. No one has a lower opinion of their base than they do. And by they, I mean, Donald Trump and the people around him and the people who imitate him. I mean, Josh Hawley's basically decided, you know, if I sound like an intelligent guy who went to elite universities, um, there's no way that Republicans will ever vote for me. I have to sound as stupid and bigoted as I possibly can, because this is who they are. Right. I mean, so that that insult is is burned into their approach across the board, it feels like.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I would give you a little bit of pushback on the Trump cultism thing. I think that the Trump cultism thing so far has only proven to work for Donald Trump himself. Donald Trump going out on the stump for in in favor of candidates has had a real has had real mixed results. Um, and I and, and I don't know if just because, you know, Ivanka Trump at, at some well, no, he definitely didn't change her diapers. But just because she's a member of his family um, doesn't. I don't know if the cult thing transfers to gods within the immediate family of the main god, if that makes well, any sense. The,
0: yeah, no, that's that's the big question. So the other thing I really wanted to talk to you about is, is, since we're on the cult, part of the cult of Trump is this cult of faux masculinity, this belief that Donald Trump is the ultimate manly man, which, leave that aside for a moment. <laughs> But mm-hmm. it is the the you spend any time on 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 the, the right wing media and and this, there is this emphasis on who is the toughest man you know what 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 real men do and you you'd had a piece for the Daily Beast about uh, after January six meet the mamas boys of Donald Trump's chicken Donald Trump's chicken shit army and let me just read you a portion I'll read you what you wrote to yourself okay, okay. and speaking of boys. While the riot was a white rainbow of entitled grievance, an awful lot of the rioters conducted themselves like emotionally and intellectually stunted man children who have never faced real consequences. Mama's boys. There's no age limit to acting like a mama's boy. Plenty of men make it through their entire lives without having to know how to iron their own clothes or cook food for themselves or treat anybody outside their demographic as more than a person who exists to address their immediate needs. Their emotional outbursts, have always been the gravity their universe orbits around for their entire lives. Somebody has been there to take care of them and bail them out. And then you go through some of the cases, including, well, you know, not just Donald Trump himself, obviously, but people like, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouses, you know, and the, and the other people who are attracted to his orbit. So it is kind of a distorted, well, give me your take on this, whether it's a distorted view of masculinity or whether you would just regard it as a subset, this, these mama boys who seem to populate Donald Trump's cult.
2: Yeah, I think that it's, it's a real kind of, it's a, it's a wrong interpretation of what it is to be a man. Um, Like Ted Cruz's wrong interpretation of what a movie is or, you know, what a movie line is. Um, It's another, it's a failure of understanding. Um, I think that, it's sort of a version of masculinity that thinks being rude to the waiter is an okay thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um it's something it's a it's a model of masculinity that discounts self-sufficiency. I don't think that um, Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump's obviously not a self-made guy. He was given a bunch of money by his rich dad and spent his entire life doing his best to lose all of it. That is the opposite of self-sufficiency. I don't believe that Donald Trump is capable of doing, um, like there's this clip of of Bernie Sanders lighting a wood stove with one match. Um, He was in the middle of an interview with a reporter and he, and, and that to me, look, politics aside, that to me is very manly, <laughs> being able to light a wood stove with one match, being able to um, take care of yourself, not being surrounded by people who are um, the ones responsible for making sure that all your needs are being met, meeting your own needs at, or being capable of meeting the needs of your family or protecting your family or being a worthwhile Citizen of your community and not being a drain on the people around you. That to me is not only like ideal masculinity, but it's ideal personhood. It's being a responsible member of society rather than just thinking that duping people out of money is, or, or you know, pulling a once over, over people or, or cheating on your wife is, is somehow manly. And I think that it's, it's a really seductive model to imagine that. Um, for your entire life, you can just act however you want and everyone around you will clean up after you, will make sure that you are um, emotionally okay, will cater to your needs. That is a seductive model of uh, people who are stunted and afraid. But it's not useful and it's not real and it's not good. And it, it is a real crisis that we've gotten to a point where there are people that can with a straight face think that that sort of behavior, that sort of a person is ideally masculine. It's it's really confounding to me.
0: This may be a little bit too much on point, but also there was once up, up until like five minutes ago, one of the traits of somebody who was actually a man would have been to be an honorable person and a good sport, therefore a good loser that you mm-hmm. would lose graciously, that at the end of the game, you would shake hands with your opponent, that the guy that would go, you know, and, and sit in, in in the corner and pout and complain and bitch and whine. Nobody thought of that person. That's the kind of guy I want to be. That's the kind of man that we should grow up to be. And, mm-hmm. and yet he's inverted all of that.
2: I was going to say, it's sort of like infinite toddlerhood. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a it's everything around me is responsible for my emotional state instead of i'm responsible for my own emotional state and i need to react to things i have i have power over the way that i react and i have the ability to make sure that you know the even if things don't go my way i don't try to just burn down the whole world and that yeah you're you're exactly right i think that the the sore loserness is another thing that's that's really pathetic to me. Um, if I had a friend who didn't get a job and they showed up to the job and tried to, you know, had, had all their friends break in and, you know, threaten the people working at the place, I would just, I just would, I would be mortified. It's mortifying behavior. I would not want to be associated publicly with a person who encouraged that sort of behavior. It's, it's embarrassing. And, you know, a word that I keep coming back to is it's, it's also very tedious in addition to being dangerous, in addition to being disturbing, it's tedious. It's so exhausting to witness adults acting like this day in and day out.
0: Well, you made a reference to uh, the Lord of the Flies. And I think one of the things that we ought to just remind ourselves of is, is that things like liberal democracy are the exception. They're not the rule. They're not the default setting. In many ways, you know, the, the, the 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 entropy of the world is always drawing us back into tribalism, um, always drawing us back from you know, people who are who are decent, civilized human beings back to Lord of the Flies. So it's taken a long time to convince young men that being the bully on the playground is not the model of manliness, that mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to show some other values like that compassion is manly. The willingness to admit you are wrong is manly. The willingness to apologize is manly and you Mm -hmm. see donald trump you know dismantling all of that and i guess from my point of view to dismantle that in the name of conservatism is just mind-blowing to me it is just absolutely seriously a lot of the people going along with this again five minutes ago would have seen this as just the model of dishonorable behavior
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and it reminds me of the clip you played at the beginning of um the beginning of the show about uh using the word conservative in such completely warped context. Um, you know, there's a lot of... It sort of reminded me of, you know, I had, for m- my entire adult life, I've thought of myself as a feminist. And then about maybe 10, 11 years ago, it started to become this word that meant everything and nothing. And, you know, you anytime anybody who ca- also called themselves that thing did something ridiculous... People who did not consider themselves feminists would come to me and be like, well, what is that? You know, what's going on with you feminists now? And it's like it's become the word conservatism, the word masculinity, the word feminism. There are so many words that used to mean things that now have been co-opted by bad actors to mean nothing. And it sucks because that kind of removes the the ability of the definition of the word to be the North Star in, like, guiding your behavior. If you consider yourself a conservative and you have to spend energy every day explaining to people that you're not actually that kind of conservative, here's what my definition is of conservatism and it's actually the correct definition, that's like a waste of your energy. It's almost like there now needs to be a new word to describe what it is. Uh, you believe in, whether it's, you know, conservatism, whether it's like ide- some form of promoting uh, pro-social masculinity, or if it's, you know, feminism. And it, and it's like, it, because the word has been colonized, the word itself has been taken prisoner. And um, it, it's just, it's a very frustrating state to be in. So I, I have to say, I really empathized um, with your frustration at the beginning of the show, because that's, it's something that I think a lot of people who have had um, their ideology uh, kind of stretched so far that it breaks can relate to?
0: No, I, and I, people that, you know, ask about the future of conservatism or whether you, you, I still think of myself as a conservative. And my answer is, I don't even know what the word means anymore. I mean, the word has been so stretched out of, out of shape, as you just uh, described it, that I don't know. And therefore, whether it's helpful or not, there was a period of time where I was trying to argue, maybe we should just dump the word completely and go back to that. We are, you know, um, classical liberals. We are liberals. There's a branding problem with that. Um, But I do think that Words that are stripped of meaning um, ought not to be employed with the same, so we say, regularity as they used to be. Okay, so in the time we have left,
2: what are you expecting from the trial? Are you looking forward to the trial? Are you not looking forward to the trial? Absolutely not. This is not fun. <laughs> None of this is fun. It's. Um, I. I don't. I think we all know what's going to happen, and we know that you know there's going to be political theater. Um, And I hate to both sides this, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a very public spectacle. So there's going to be political theater on, on both sides. What's going to happen is the Democrats could literally just show video of what happened on January 6th, just a stream of video from CNN or, you know, MSNBC, Fox News, PBS, BBC, whatever, any news outlet. Yeah. Any news outlet that was there, uh, they could just show that and be like, your honor, I rest my case. And in front of any other jury, uh, in, in the country, Donald Trump would be convicted of inciting the insurrection, you know, and also there are people who were participants in the insurrection who say that they were doing it on his orders. He bears deep responsibility for promoting the lie that led to this, and he bears direct responsibility for encouraging people to storm the Capitol on January 6th. Now, that's absolutely not going to result in a conviction because the Republicans in the Senate have no spine. Um, I, I could see maybe a Mitt Romney, uh, once again, voting to convict him because he is, um, one of the only uh, people in the Senate who's on the Republican side who cares about trying to be a good person. I I don't think I would ever could ever see myself voting for him, but he does deeply want to be a good guy, which is refreshing in today's political world. Um, I just, it's going to be very frustrating and what's going to end up happening is a lot of uh, a lot of doublespeak, where it's like you know Donald Trump couldn't be tried in a criminal court outside of the Senate while he was in office, but now that he's out of office, he can't be tried for things ever that he did while in office. It's just I, I predict a lot of very frustrating stuff.
0: No, it's going to be bad.
2: It's yeah, going to no. be horrible, and um, I don't know how much of it I can watch. But at the same time, I never leave my house unless I'm on a hike. So I don't know what else I'm going to do except watch it. It's just gonna I'm going to have a lot of headaches and it's going to be very difficult to uh, continue my, I'm not drinking this month. It's going to be a difficult time to not be drinking.
0: Yeah, you might have picked the wrong month for that.
2: Um, <laughs> All but, the months are the wrong month. So, so here,
0: here's my, my question. I, I don't disagree with you. And I think, the you know, listening to the, you know, the disingenuous rationalizations, they, you know, the fact that you had 45 Republican senators who voted for that complete bullshit re, uh, motion by Rand Paul, that the trial was unconstitutional, which is, I think, an absurd idea. Given any reading of the Constitution, so so th- th- this is this is fixed. The the verdict is determined. It's rigged. The jury has been compromised. <laughs> you know, it all has been tampered with. All of that. So the the lawyer the lawyers have the easiest job in the world. All they need to do is stand up and say, um, you know, Rand Paul's right. We shouldn't be doing this. Sit down, and you win the trial. Right. This mm-hmm. is like the perfect. Easy, you no. Know, it's the greatest marketing moment. Any any lawyer is going to be on national television in front of the Senate, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It is interesting that no one is is willing to take it except for these really sort of sleazeball lawyers. And it's because Donald Trump wants to turn this into a farce. He wants the, his lawyers to continue pushing the big lie, which I think is going to be fascinating. How much he pushes that whole idea and whether or not that pushes some of the senators who just want to keep their heads down they want to avert their eyes they don't want to have to deal with this but if he comes in there and just tries to rub their face in all of the deranged conspiracy theories it is this insult to their intelligence as well as an insult to the process it won't change the results he's not going to be convicted but you know that's that's interesting to me it is interesting to me how many republicans will break with him um i think there's possibility the five who voted against the the motion might vote it might be 55 45 i don't know um not enough but but certainly an historical marker um is 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 donald trump deranged enough that he would actually come and want to defend himself or come and testify because that would be something
2: i think that would be something and he's he's so broken-brained um and and so there's some, I mean, you know this just as well as anybody else, but there is something wrong with him. Like there is something emotionally, there is something that does not connect that should be connecting. And by that, I mean that he doesn't seem to have any sense of right or wrong beyond whether or not, um, whether or not it, it directly benefits him. And in his warped mind, I think that he believes that any form of attention benefits him. He is like, I feel sometimes like we're in a dystopian story where an old man who loves to yell at the TV discovers one day that he can control what happens on the TV. And he becomes like this megalomaniac about just trying to promote, trying to make the TV as interesting as possible. Um, And so I think that, you know, it is possible that he would come out and, and try to defend himself because he's just that deranged, like to borrow a word that you use. But I don't, I don't know. I, I just, I can't, I'm, I'm done looking mm. at him. I'm done listening yeah, I to know. him. Talk. I know. I'm done hearing from him. He never had any good ideas and he especially doesn't have any good, any relevant ideas now that he's not in power anymore in the, in the white house anymore. Um, you and aren't and
0: ready I, to move on to healing right now. Are
2: you? I am not willing to move on to healing. I am an Irish person and I can hold grudges forever. I will hold grudges against these people uh, who went along with this for the rest of my life. Um, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it's time to move on, but I do think that it's time for us to deal with what is necessary in order to get things done. And what's necessary in order to get things done is to. Uh, I think that Donald Trump shouldn't be allowed to run for office again, and I think everybody who enabled him should face electoral consequences, or at least you know, be reminded of um, what they did every single day for the rest of their political careers until they've, until they've atoned enough for it, which I don't know if it's possible.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I obviously agree with all of that. See, the interesting thing about, it, about the Trump defense is if he does push the, the election was stolen from him, which I actually believe that he's now come to believe. I mean, he really has internalized this crazy stuff. And to the extent that he does this, it, it takes the focus off of just the words he said on January 6th. And don't get me wrong. I think the words he said on January 6th are more than enough to convict him. I believe he did incite this. The whole idea of, you know, I will walk with you to the Capitol. But it is, of course, the big lie starting from the election day and this amazing piece in the New York Times that uh, of the, about the 77 uh, days, uh, review, you know, how, how this all built. It's 8000 word story. The more we find out about this, the way that he spun this stuff. You know, with the exception of the most, you know, deeply Trump worldly members of the Senate, this would be so embarrassing. So I'm willing to embarrass them before they do the inevitable thing that they do. Um, You know, and and again, anytime you get your hopes up on this, see, my take on all of this was originally was knowing that he was never going to be convicted. I was hoping, again, this is, you know, fantasy. That The Biden administration would have appointed a special counsel, convened a grand jury and begun criminal investigation into the entire insurrection, including mm-hmm. Donald Trump's role. So that that even if he escapes the political consequences of impeachment, that he actually will face criminal conspiracy charges, possibly and and and, you know, being a convicted felon would have the same effect as being convicted in the Senate by of the impeachment. I still hope that will happen because I think the most fundamental one of the most fundamental principles that was uh, under assault in the Trump years is, is the president above the law or not? Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump is very close now to creating a precedent that the president cannot be charged when he's president, and can't be charged after he's president, that he can pardon his cronies, that he can misuse the pardon power, that he can obstruct justice and suffer no consequences whatsoever, which to say that would be a disaster, is really understating it.
2: Right. And, you know, it's sort of like, okay, if that's the case, then whoever we elect president, we're basically just giving him a free murder coupon. Like he can just go out and do some murders, and that's all going to be fine because we can't convict the president of anything. I know that's taking it to a little bit of a cartoonish extreme, but that's where we're headed if there is no accountability. Um, Yesterday, I was thinking about the Capitol, you know, as you were talking, thinking about the Capitol riots I think one thing that um, Republicans in the Senate who are really kind of horny to move on from this, uh, like Ted, the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's who want to pretend like they had nothing to do with it. Um, one thing that's kind of getting lost is the, the terror and um, distress that the incident caused people who are working in the Capitol. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did an Instagram live yesterday where she talked about her experience and how terrified she was of dying. Katie Porter from California um, basically took AOC into her office and AOC was afraid for her life. And, you know, it is not okay that that happened. And, and the fact that people in the house, it's just, it's a workplace to me that reads like such a fucked up place to have to work. Like, imagine if your co-workers Imagine if something happened to you where you thought you were going to die because of something your coworkers encouraged, and then they just didn't want there to be any accountability. That it just it completely boggles my mind. And I and I think just to back off, uh, to, to you know, to to zoom out a little bit and talk about the politics of this, as cynical as that is, I think that AOC talking about her terror and the trauma of feeling like you were being hunted is something that. Republicans don't get to decide when that goes away. And, you know, I was reading this morning about a postmortem on the Trump campaign done internally in the campaign and how they found that a lot of the reason that they lost was uh, that they hemorrhaged white voters. And I would not be surprised if a lot of those people who hemorrhaged away from Donald Trump were women. And the more stories we have from people like AOC and Katie Porter and other people who are in the Capitol who are terrified, I think that really connects with female voters in a way that Republicans do not want to fuck with. You know, it, you're, you're going to run out of white guys, guys. You're never going to be a viable political party again unless you deal with this.
0: Uh, so I, I I was listening to one of your podcasts, which was right after January six. It was very close after that, and you had on one of the congresswomen. I'm I'm trying to remember which one. Um, who Representative
2: Jayapal from yes. Washington,
0: which was very um, emotional and very graphic, because she talked about how the fact that she couldn't move because she had had knee surgery, and really in the tone of her voice, you could get the fresh. I you mean, know, how how you know, immediate that was, how intense that was. And I think the Republicans have simply decided that we're just going to drop that in the memory hole and we're going to move on. And the farther we get away from that, the more we can pretend it didn't happen, um, which is, again, why this trial is so important next week, because it will remind people this just happened. And it was, you know, you can avert your eyes from it. But, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to that one video of the woman who was trampled to death while these protesters were trying to beat up on cops. You know, these are the these are the people who I'm guessing, you know, have lawn signs back the blue. We back the blue and all of this stuff. And there they are beating on cops, you know, trampling a woman. The degree of the savagery and the viciousness of it. Now, you mentioned murder before. And it was Donald Trump who said, you know, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue. I mean, that became this this worn out cliche. And, you know, I could shoot somebody and nothing would happen. And yet what happened was I could get my supporters to go out and murder a police officer and I will still um, not lose any support because, I mean, keep in mind, this is this is this is a movement that claims that it is, you know, pro law enforcement, pro military, you know, patriotic flag wearing. And what did they do? They replaced the American flag with the Trump flag, and they killed a cop. And, yeah, and, yeah, and, it seems and, a little
2: hypocritical.
0: <laughs> a little bit. It's like that's where your head explodes. Um, this, this is making America great. You look at that picture, and you think these are the great patriots. Uh, this is what law enforcement is all about. But this is this is where we're at. So yeah. you, you, you mentioned the movie. I saw that there's this new movie coming out with Owen Wilson and Selma Hayek.
2: Oh, uh, well,
0: I haven't seen that. It, no, I don't think it's out yet. It's it, it's a sci-fi thriller about a man who discovers that he's living in a computer simulation.
2: Oh, it, yes, it's called Bliss. I'm yeah, yeah I know, I, I know about this movie. Yeah,
0: I, my initial reaction was I kind of was hoping that someday we would find out that this was a computer simulation. <laughs> Everything has been tested, and this didn't really happen to us. That there is an Earth 2.0 in which people are still behaving like rational human beings, but unfortunately, no.
2: I mean, the thing is, though, that opens a whole new set of difficult, uncomfortable, and terrifying questions. Like, if we're living in in a simulation, who's the programmer? Who programmed this? What deranged, demented alien put this input in? Either they're a very bad programmer, and this is glitching all to hell, and it's time to install an update, and nobody's figured out patches for the bugs, or it's a programmer that is totally in control, and... What the hell? What? Why is this happening? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I do joke a lot about simulation stuff because sometimes, you know, the the thing where you, you're thinking about a song and then you, you go into your car and you turn your car on and it's on the radio, you know, that sort of thing. It feels like it's happening a lot. But I also think that right now we're just noticing all of the ways that life is strange because we're caught in this kind of groundhog day of pandemic life. So I, I would say maybe it would be nice if we were living in a simulation. I would prefer if this was real and it was just something that we could work out here on earth rather than having to rely on, you know, some alien computer yeah, well, genius. Well,
0: you you get your wish because that's, that's what we have. You know? <laughs> we have to work this out. Aaron Ryan, thank you so much. Uh, you can find Aaron Ryan's work at the Daily Beast. She's the host of Crooked Media's hysteria podcast And of course, uh, when we get back to making sitcoms again, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. So uh, Erin, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.